Oh, Lord, we are just, wow, we're so grateful to be here. It is a beautiful day. And so thankful for our church family, the chance that we have to come and encourage one another, pray for one another. Just the privilege to, to together with, with one heart and one voice, pray for people in our church body that are going through incredibly difficult situations. Think of Jen and Seth and, wow, that's a lot. That's heavy. Think of the Freeman family and others. And God, we just uh, thank you for the privilege we have to be in a family like this to, to shoulder those burdens together. And uh, we also thank you for the privilege we have to worship you, again, with one heart and one voice declaring your praise. How great it is to know that this life is not about us. It's about you. And together with one voice, we declare that as we worship you because you are worthy of every song we could ever sing. We thank you for that. And God, we thank you for your word. What a privilege it is that here in 2022 that, that most of us own multiple copies and multiple versions of, uh, of your word, the Bible. God, I pray that you would increase our hunger to read it, to study it, and to apply the truths of your word to our lives. God, would you help us as a people to surrender our hearts, to surrender our minds, and to surrender our wills to the authority of your word. And God, would you speak to us now? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What a gift, right? God's word. Do you value it? What a treasure uh, that we get to have God's word and we get to read it and study it and hopefully apply it to our lives. Well, today I am beyond excited that we are starting a, a new series. It's not because I didn't like the last series, um, but this is exciting for me because we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph, uh, the son of Jacob uh, from the book of Genesis. And Joseph is another one of my favorite you know, characters in the Bible. There's so many of them, right? There's Joseph, but there's also Daniel. Uh, we studied Elijah last fall in, in the first part of this year. Uh, love those guys. They're great. Uh, I mean, how about Esther? What an incredible story that is. And, and just so many. Uh, but I am really excited about this study of uh, looking at Joseph's life because Joseph, he is a remarkable man of God. And I think as we make our way through this series, we're going to see that Joseph was a man who remained faithful to God, trusting him no matter what kind of trials, no matter what kind of temptations, and, you know, honestly, no matter what kind of triumphs that came into his life. Joseph placed his life in the capable and sovereign hands of God. And I think sometimes we need a reminder of, of, of how to do that, don't we? How many people would say that Joseph is one of your favorite Bible characters? Yeah, for good reason. And one of the things that I think that makes the story of Joseph so great is just the length of it. Um, this is one of the longest narratives in the scriptures. And uh, Joseph's story picks up in Genesis chapter 37. It goes all the way to the end of the book, chapter 50. It makes up over 25% of the book of Genesis. And if you think about all that's contained in the book of Genesis, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, if you think about the fact that, you know, you've got the creation, the fall, the flood, the dispersion, uh, you've got all these other major characters like Adam 
and Eve, and you've got, you've got Noah, and you've got Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. There's a lot that happens in the book of Genesis, and yet Joseph's life takes up 25% of the real estate in that book. And as we make our way through this series, I think we're going to become aware of several reasons why that is. First of all, I think that the story of Joseph, uh, his life provides us with an understanding of how the nation of Israel ends up living as slaves in Egypt. Can you imagine if the book of Genesis ends at chapter 36 and then you turn to Exodus chapter one and they're in slavery? You'd be like, what in the world happened for the Israelites to end up as slaves under Pharaoh? We would be totally lost, wouldn't we? And Joseph's life answers that question. The second reason why I believe that Joseph's life is featured so prominently is tied to Joseph's impeccable character. His life provides us with an example of how we can walk with God through the highest peaks and through the lowest valleys of our lives. You see, Joseph, he knew the pain of betrayal and loss. He experienced the temptations of sin. He understood what it feels like to be wrongly accused and punished without cause. And Joseph also experienced the dangers that come with power and success. But in all these things, Joseph maintained his godly character and his faithfulness to God. Third reason why I believe that Joseph's life is featured so prominently is because of the way that Joseph's life reminds us of Jesus. Biblical scholars and commentators, they have come up with, with dozens of parallels between the life of Christ and, and the life of Joseph. I mean, I've seen lists that go as many as 100 to 200 parallels between, I think some of them are a little bit of a stretch, to be honest with you. Um, they both had hair. No, I'm just kidding. So, no, but, there, but there, there's a lot of similarities between the life of Jesus and, and the life of Joseph. Warren Wiersbe says this, Joseph is like Jesus in that he was beloved by his father and obedient to his will. He was hated and rejected by his own brethren and sold as a slave. He was falsely accused and unjustly punished. And finally, he was elevated from the place of suffering to a powerful throne, thus saving his people from death. That's a pretty good summation of the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph's life has so many parallels to the life of Jesus. His life provides us with a foreshadow of the Messiah, Jesus, who would one day come as a savior, not just for a family, but for the sins of the entire world. And a fourth reason, I've got like 20. So no, this is the last one. A fourth reason why I believe that Joseph's life is featured so prominently is because it highlights the sovereignty of God. You see, the story of Joseph, and we love the story of Joseph, don't we? As amazing as his story is, this is not really a story that is primarily about Joseph. And I think it's really important to pause and remember that. The story of Joseph is primarily a story about the sovereign God working through the life of his servant, a faithful man, in order to do what? In order to save a family, in order to build a nation, in order to bring a savior, a Messiah to the world. The story of Joseph highlights the sovereign hand of God working to bring about his plan 
of redemption. And for me, this is one of the things that I love most about Joseph's story. Because when we read about Joseph's life, we are able to zoom out, right? We get to see the big picture. And in our own lives, what do we see? What's right in front of us, right? But with Joseph's life, we get to step back and we get to see how God is truly in control of all those details, right? We're reminded in Joseph's life that our suffering is not without a purpose, even when we don't understand. And we're reminded that ultimately, the story of our lives isn't really ultimately about us, is it? Like Joseph, ultimately, the story of our lives is about God and God wanting to work through our lives to accomplish his purposes here on the earth. Amen? It's good stuff. There is so much for us to learn through the life of Joseph. So if you have your Bible, I'll have you turn with me now to Genesis chapter 37. And I should probably warn you, I should let you know right out of the gate that today we are not going to get very far into the story of Joseph. Um, I had thought to try to tackle the first 11 verses and very quickly realized we were only going to make it through four. So this is going to be like a five-year series. Um, <laughs> no, I promise it won't be. This is, but today, it's really important, I think, for us to become familiar with the context. And I believe specifically, we need to be, uh, become familiar with uh, Joseph's family. Uh, I didn't title today's message necessarily, but if I did title it, I would call it Joseph's Not-So-Perfect Family, uh, which is a really kind way of putting it. Um, so let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 says this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk uh, about Jacob, and we're going to talk a lot uh, about Jacob and his family. But first, I want to talk about the land of Canaan. Canaan is the area of the ancient Near East that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, this area, which the Bible refers to often as the promised land. You've heard that, right? We're going into the, the promised land. And you can see on this map that Canaan, uh, this area here looks a lot like modern day Israel, right? And that should be fresh in your minds from last week when I had the maps up here. You can see on there the, the Dead Sea, you've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, the Jordan River. It's Israel, right? Well, that's because the promised land, the land of Canaan, includes all of what is modern-day Israel. But it also includes parts of modern-day uh, Jordan to the east of, of, uh, of the Dead Sea. It also includes parts of modern-day uh, Lebanon and, and Syria to the, to the north um, up there. You can see Damascus up, up there in Syria. So, that is the land of Canaan, the land of the promised land. But what's really important to note in that first verse is that Jacob, it says, as well as his fathers, Abraham, who was his grandfather, and Isaac, who was his father, they were all, what does it say? They were sojourners in the land of Canaan. They were, they were still at this time, at the time, we call this the time of the patriarchs, which really is from Genesis 12 to Genesis chapter 50 they were still at this time a relatively small group of people, a family. 
And they had not yet taken possession of the land that God had promised to them. So they're just living in the land amongst a lot of other people, specifically the Canaanites, right? So now let's talk about Jacob. Jacob is the father of Joseph. And I think in order for us to really get a sense of where Joseph's story begins, we really need to understand a little bit about his dad and this not-so-perfect family that Joseph was born into. Jacob, whose name was later changed by God to Israel, and by the way, that's where we get the, the nation of Israel or the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. It comes from, from Jacob. He is one of three men that in the scriptures are referred to as the patriarchs, the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. First, there is Abraham, again, his grandfather. Then there's Abraham's son, Isaac. And the third is Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, Jacob was one of the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And according to Genesis chapter 25, when it came to their sons, Isaac and Rebekah, they definitely, uh, they like to play their favorites. Okay, let's just put it that way. How many of you know that playing favorites with your kids is not a great recipe for family joy and harmony? How many people know that? Like, how many of you are actually like, like psychologists or sociologists? Anybody? And you know this, right? You know that this is not a good recipe for family joy and harmony. But Isaac did not hide the fact that Esau was his favorite. And Rebecca had no problem, you know, showing that Jacob was her favorite. And so when Isaac was getting older and his, his vision was failing and it was time for him to pass on the blessing, Okay, the blessing to the next heir. Rebecca and her son Jacob, because he's the favorite of Rebecca, come up with a plan to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob when the blessing was supposed to go to Esau, his older brother. And the plan works. Isaac blesses Jacob. And you can imagine that Esau was absolutely thrilled with this, right? Like, sweet, the blessing went right past me and went to my brother Jacob. I am so excited about this, right? No, he was absolutely what? He was incensed. He was furious. He was so furious that he came up with a plan, a plot, that as soon as dad dies, Jacob dies. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. Well, how do you think Rebecca feels about this? Rebecca, this is her favorite son, Jacob, and she finds out that Esau is planning to kill him. So she goes to her husband, Isaac, and she says, you know, Esau, he married a bunch of ladies from the land. It's not been good. They are a real pain uh, in, in our sides, right? They, they do not like these women that Esau has married. So she says to her husband, Isaac, hey, how about this? How about we send Jacob away so that he can go and find a wife from among our, uh, my people up in Padan, a ram, okay? And so Isaac says, yeah, that's probably a good plan. Really, why is she sending him away? Well, find a wife, sure, but really trying to save his neck, right? So she sends him away. And Jacob travels a distance of roughly 450 miles, okay, from, from where they were living at the time in Beersheba, 
And uh, I think I showed some videos from Beersheba a few weeks back. I don't know if you remember the video where they were standing. I, I was by the well and I was showing it was a dry and weary land. Okay, this is where Isaac and Rebecca are raising their twin sons in that area. And she sends him all the way to Padanaram up in uh, where her family is from, uh, 450 miles away, uh, hopefully enough distance to, to, to save him from his brother. Well, the plan was to find a wife and find a wife he did. <laughs> so some of you understand why that's so funny. But uh, Jacob, as soon as he arrives in Haran, Jacob meets and he falls head over heels in love with the love of his life, Rachel. He meets Rachel and he is, he's smitten, right? Is, do people use the word smitten today? Is that still a, okay, good. All right, so Jacob is smitten and, and, and he works out a deal with Rachel's father Laban and says, hey, here's the deal. Um, we're gonna work seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. And they work out this deal and Jacob's gonna work for Laban. Well, a lot of you know the story, but on the wedding night, after seven years of service, it's time for the wedding. And uh, I don't know, they must've been partying hard or something because on the wedding night, Laban, turns out Laban is a trickster just like Jacob. Jacob tricked Esau, Laban's gonna trick Jacob. And what he does is on the night of the wedding, instead of sending Rachel in to be with Jacob, he sends in Rachel's older sister, Leah. Well, J uh, Jacob wakes up in the morning. Again, I don't know why he didn't notice at night, <laughs> but it must have been quite a party. So he wakes up in the morning and he looks, he's like, what has happened? I did, this was not the bargain. This was not the deal. And uh, so he goes to Laban and he says, what are we gonna do about this? And Laban says, well, uh, here's the deal. Uh, in our culture, we don't, we don't give away the younger daughter first. It was like, well, that would have been a great detail to tell me seven years ago, right? But he says, this is what we'll do. You work for me for another seven years, fulfill the time here, this, this week of, uh, of the honeymoon, and then you can have Rachel as well. So Jacob was like, well, I'm in love with Rachel. So, okay, deal. So he agrees to work for an additional seven years. And, uh, and then he now has two wives. So Jacob now has uh, two wives. These are Leah and Rachel, uh, these sisters. And, and this begins um, what, what turns out to be the beginning of a crazy, messed up, dysfunctional, you know, family where, where Jacob, again, like his parents, has no problem hiding his favoritism, right? He's showing all the favoritism to his wife, Rachel, and he's ignoring Leah, Right? And these two women are at a constant battle for the affections of their husband, Jacob. And I don't know if I have to say this, but I'm just gonna say it. Ladies and gentlemen, polygamy doesn't work, okay? It doesn't, and by the way, I say that only because lit I literally heard not like more than like a week or two ago, a discussion where somebody was trying to defend the idea of having multiple wives using examples like Jacob. And here's what you need to understand when you read your Bibles, okay? This is just a rule. When you're reading your Bibles, you need to ask yourself this question. Is what I'm reading prescriptive or is it descriptive? Is, is the Bible describing what happened or telling us what should happen? Okay, in this example, let me tell you something. This is descriptive. This is what happened. God is not saying everybody should have two wives, all right? It doesn't work, and you can go to all the examples in Scripture, and every time what you're going to see is a lot of family joy and, and in harmony. No, it's total chaos, 
right? It's total chaos. So Jacob has these two wives and um, this begins what I like to refer to as the period of Jacob's life called the baby wars. Uh, This is the, the time of the baby wars. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 29 that when God saw that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, God blessed Leah and she gave birth to not one, not two, not three, not four. No, yes, four. Four, I could have kept going, right? No, she gives birth to four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. But Rachel, much to her dismay, she remained barren. And that was a situation that in in their culture would have brought her incredible feelings of shame and embarrassment. And so in desperation, Rachel, she comes up with with a a plan to make a bad situation significantly worse, okay? How many of you know that that when you come up with your own plans and you don't seek God's heart, sometimes it just makes things worse, right? Absolutely. So that's what Rachel does here. So she comes up with this amazing plan that she is going to give her servant Bilhah, she's going to give her servant Bilhah to Jacob in order to have children through her. So Rachel gives Bilhah to Jacob and she gives birth to two more sons, Dan and Naphtali. Well, Leah sees what's going on here and she's like, well, I'm no fool. Two can play that game. How about this? I'll give my servant Zilpah to Jacob and she can have sons for me too. It's the baby wars, right? And so Zilpah gives birth to two more sons, Gad and Asher. And now Jacob has eight sons. Wow. But it's not over. He's just getting started, right? After Zilpah has her two sons, Leah ends up having three more children. Two sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and a daughter named Dinah. Talk about a poor girl. She is growing up in a house with a fistful of of guys, all right? Then finally, after years, after years of being unable to have children, God opens Rachel's womb and she gives birth to Joseph. Wow. Jacob now has 11 sons and one daughter. You see, during his time living in Haran, Jacob has gone from from a single man to the leader of of a large uh, family, blessed with incredible wealth and an incredibly large herd of animals. And I know you're thinking that does not sound like a blessing. That's exactly how I feel, the herd of animals. Like we have three cats and that is way more animals than any family could possibly you know, need. But Jacob is blessed with hundreds, if not thousands of, of animals. We know that he gave a gift to his brother Esau later of like 500 animals. And his, his, uh, his flock included goats and sheep Camels, cows, donkeys. Camels, by the way, are a very cool animal. Uh, Nathaniel and I got to ride on them in, in, in Israel. Um, they're a cool animal, but they are really not very fun to ride. I, I'm just gonna be honest. Like, it's like, oh, I can't wait to ride a camel. I hope I never ride a camel again as long as I live. It's like, you know, like you're just like, <laughs> like it's really uncomfortable. And, and I think the only way to maybe ride a camel would be like side saddle. You know, like sitting like this and like, you know, but camels are not incredibly. So I have so much respect for these people who like the wise men who traveled and it's amazing that they, they would travel by, 
by camel. So anyway, Joseph's got this incredibly large, uh, large herd uh, of animals, and God has just been blessing Jacob in his time in Haran. But in Genesis chapter 31, God tells Jacob that it is time to return to the land of his fathers in Canaan. It's time to go home. And so Jacob takes up all of his belongings with his four wives, his 12 children, and a ridiculously large number of animals. And Jacob begins to move his family back to Canaan. What a a trip that must have been. I wonder how many times they had to stop to find a bathroom, you know? (laughs) Or how many times did he hear, are we there yet? (laughs) Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I mean, my family, we rode to Florida when our boys were young. We drove, I don't know why we, I would never do that again. That was crazy, right? I mean, if you've done the drive with young kids to to Florida, you know how fun that can be, especially when one of your kids gets car sick. I mean, this is such a fun ride. But I can't imagine what this must have been like for for Jacob moving, you know, this large family and this large herd 400 plus miles back, uh, back to Canaan. Well, now a lot of things are going to happen uh, between chapter 32 and chapter 37, where we pick up the story of Joseph. And so I'm just going to highlight a few of those things here now. In chapter 32, during the journey back, Jacob has an encounter with God and the Lord changes his name to Israel. And then in chapter 33, as they are traveling, Jacob meets up with his brother Esau. This is the one that he cheated out of the blessing, right? And the one who wants him dead. And rightfully so, you know, Jacob and his family are nervous. His family, we're about to meet Uncle Esau, and I heard he wants to kill dad. And they're, they're nervous, right? And Jacob's nervous, and he's worried for his family. But to his surprise, Esau is delighted to see his brother Jacob. He, he weeps on his neck, and he's so happy to see his brother who's been gone for probably at least 20 years at this point. And so he's really excited to see his, his brother. And these two, they make, they make peace with one another. Well, in chapter 34, Jacob and his family, they're living uh, near the city of Shechem and tragedy strikes Jacob's family. You see, Jacob's daughter went to visit some of the ladies in the city of Shechem and Dinah is raped by a Hivite prince of that city. And in order to get revenge for what happened to their sister, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, They formulate a plan and together they attack and they kill all of the men of that city. And what we see in that text um, that isn't obviously stated, but becomes apparent as we look at uh, Jacob's life is that Jacob was a very passive father. Instead of dealing with the situation or what happened to his daughter, Jacob is more concerned in, in, in maybe disciplining his sons for the maybe the way that they took justice into their own hands Jacob is more concerned with how he's going to look to all the other people in the land. He takes no leadership in in, in working through this horrible situation with his daughter and his sons. And then in chapter 35, Jacob leads his family away from Shechem and they make their way to Bethel. And from there, they make their way towards Bethlehem. And along this journey, as they're making their way, Rachel gives birth to Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. I didn't even mention the fact that, that with this large, entour- large entourage that's moving on their way home, 
<laughs> Rachel's pregnant. So you can imagine how fun that must have been for her, right? Well, she, on the way into Bethlehem, Rachel gives birth to, to, to Benjamin. And what should have been a joyful day was marred by the death of Rachel as she was giving birth. It, it was a day that no doubt would have left a deep hole in both the heart of Jacob and Joseph. His wife, the one he truly dearly loved, was gone, and Joseph lost his mother. And to make matters worse, to make matters worse, also in chapter 35, we're told that Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, ends up sleeping with Bilhah, Rachel's servant, and the mother of two of his half-brothers. This is, this is Joseph's crazy, messed up, dysfunctional family, right? And again, though, when you read that encounter in 35, it just says, and, and, and Israel heard about it. And then he says, let's go, right? We don't, we don't see any sort of, what is, how, does, how does Israel discipline Reuben in this situation? In fact, he never really mentions it again until the later parts of Genesis, which we'll get to when he's about to die himself and talking to his sons um, at the end of his life. In Psalm chapter 133, verse one, David said this, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. <laughs> it is good. It is pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. But I don't have to tell you, I don't think, that unity is probably the last word that would come to mind when you're describing the family that Joseph grew up in. You see, when you have 13 children with four different women, and everyone knows that you love and favor one of those women over all the others. And everyone knows that you love and favor, you know, one or two of those kids over all the others. You have all the needed ingredients for a family filled with jealousy, hatred, and conflict. What you have is a completely dysfunctional family, a family characterized not by unity, but by disunity. And this is the family that Joseph grew up in. And I bring all of this up. I bring all of this up to make the point that our lives and the choices that we make, our lives and the choices that we make, if we learn anything from Joseph's life, is that they do not have to determine um, how our, our, our present and our future will be lived. Your present and your future are not determined by your past. They are determined by what you choose to do with your past. Now, I don't want you to raise your hands because that would be very awkward if your family is watching. But how many of you in your hearts, nobody's looking. So how many of you in your hearts would say, yeah, I kind of grew up in a dysfunctional family. I'm not looking because you might make facial expressions too. Some of you, and because I know some of your stories, some of you I know have overcome incredibly painful hurts that came from the families that you grew up in, right? Like Joseph, you are living proof that with the Lord's help, you can overcome, right? While it is absolutely true, and I don't want to deny this, while it is absolutely true that some people have incredibly more to overcome, right? It's much more that they have to deal with. The fact of the matter is the painful scars uh, of our past do not have to define our present or 
our future. By God's grace, we can overcome and we can live lives in obedience to and for the glory of God. Your present and your future are not determined by your past. They are determined by what you choose to do with your past. Joseph came from a messed up family. And we're going to see that Joseph is going to go through some terribly painful experiences. But we're also going to see that Joseph continued to make the choice. He made the choice to continue trusting and following God. And by God's grace, Joseph overcame and the Lord did great things through his life. So that is, um, that's a bit of a lengthy introduction to the life of Joseph but really, I think it is quite important for us to understand the family dynamics as well as the way that Jacob and his family grew and they became a large family and they came to reside in the land of Canaan. So with that, now let's make our way through the next three verses, just three more verses, and I promise I won't spend as much time on each of these. Um, verse two. Verse two says this. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. As we now enter into the story of Joseph, we begin to see some of the additional family dynamics which led to the tension between Joseph and his brothers. And the first thing we see here in verse two is that Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Joseph, now 17 years old, he's pastoring the flock with four of his brothers, the ones who were born to Leah and Rachel's servants. And apparently Joseph was still considered a boy and perhaps he was, you know, maybe still learning the ropes of shepherding along with his, his next closest older brothers. But whatever the case may be, Joseph brings a bad report about them to his father. And the text doesn't actually tell us what his brothers had done. And the text doesn't really tell us why Joseph thought he had to bring this report to his father. Now, some people think that Joseph was just a teenage tattletale, right? Was he trying to get them in trouble or to make them look bad? Maybe. I mean, sometimes spoiled children will do things like that. He might have. Although I don't think it's really consistent with the rest of his character that we read about in the text. It is possible that he did that, but it's also possible that his brother's sins were so egregious that he had to let his father know what was going on. You know, there are times when notifying someone about a wrongdoing is the absolute right thing to do. I mean, think about it for a second. What if you witness a crime? Is it more noble and honorable to keep that to yourself, to keep it a secret, or to report it? Well, I hope that the way you answered with that would be, I think it's more honorable and the right thing to do would be to report that crime, Right? You witness a murder, you're gonna keep it to yourself or do you make sure that it's known? Obviously, we should report it. But what about other sins? What happens when you see a brother or sister who's compromising their integrity? What happens when you see, you know, you're aware of, of, of things that are happening maybe in the workplace 
that would bring disgrace and dishonor to the name of your company or to the name of your God. What happens when you see these types of things happening among your brothers and sisters in Christ? Listen, there are times when the most loving thing that we can do is to uh, bring things into the light. As F.B. Meyer says, it is sometimes the truest kindness after due and repeated warning to expose the evil deeds of those with whom we live and work. If they're permitted to go on in sin, apparently undetected, they will become hardened and more emboldened and eager to go to greater lengths. You're not doing your brothers and sisters a favor by allowing them to continue to go further and further and further into sin. The right thing to do is to go to your brother and sister in love and confront them. Not so that you look better, because you love them, right? And if they don't respond, we have some precedent on what to do in the scriptures, right? Maybe bring somebody else with you, right? And if they continue to persist in sin, maybe you bring the church leadership into this, right? It's not easy, but it's the right thing to do, isn't it? And it's the loving thing to do. But another possibility is, is here is that Jacob may have put Joseph in a position of authority over his brothers. Maybe he gave Joseph the very task of reporting back to him about his brother's behavior. Maybe Jacob had concerns. Maybe he heard rumors about something that was going on. So he asked Joseph to tell him what's going on. Joseph's not going to lie to his father, is he? He tells them he brings a bad report. Well, the truth is we just don't know. The Bible doesn't say what his brothers did or why Joseph reported back to his father. But what is clear, however, is that Joseph's bad report would have added to the tensions that existed between Joseph and his brothers. And what's also clear is that Jacob didn't do anything to make the situation better. Let's look at verse three. Verse three says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Joseph makes absolutely no effort to conceal that Joseph is his favorite child. Now you would think, you would think that Jacob might have learned from the mistakes that his parents made, right? Dad favored Esau, mom favored me, and that almost cost me my life right? You would think he'd learn from that. You might think he might have learned from the wars that were taking place between Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. And after all this time, you might think he's like, you know, probably shouldn't show favoritism in the house. But Jacob didn't learn. Instead, he seems to go out of his way to make it obvious. Joseph was the oldest son of the woman that Jacob truly loved, a, a son that was born to him in his old age. And so Jacob, as a sign of his love for Joseph, made him a robe of many colors. Now, I remember as a kid growing up in Sunday school. Yeah, there it is. I remember when, when I was, you know, being taught this, this story and hearing it, and, 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 you know, maybe we had coloring sheets that we had to fill in. Sometimes you made arts and crafts with all kinds of different colored yarn and make a Joseph's you know, coat of many colors. Here's what I remember. I remember thinking like, that is the ugliest coat I've ever seen. <laughs> like in my mind, I just could not understand why in the world are Joseph's brothers so mad that dad gave Joseph such an ugly coat. You know, they should be thanking their dad 
for not making them wear this thing, all right? <laughs> it's ugly. But it turns out that this, quote, robe of many colors, as it's translated, um, could also be translated as a long coat with sleeves, a long coat with sleeves, a, a coat that would drape down to the ankles and down to the wrists and be decorated with colorful embroidery. It was a type of coat that princes and people of nobility would wear. It was certainly not the type of clothing that a shepherd or a man of the fields would wear. Maybe, maybe Jacob was letting his sons know that my son Joseph, he's not going to be a man of the fields. You guys can work in the fields. My son Joseph is destined for greater things. Wearing a long coat like that in the fields would have been completely impractical. And Joseph's brothers, they would have seen this gift as a sign that their father had chosen Joseph as the primary heir to the inheritance. He's not the oldest, right? He's number 11. But in Jacob's mind, he is the oldest son of the woman that I truly loved and the one that I wanted to marry in the first place. And so he has no problem letting his sons know that Joseph will be the heir. And this uh, causes an even more consternation with his brothers. Verse four says that when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Let those words just sink in for a moment. Can you, I mean, honestly, put yourself somehow into that family dynamic. Imagine being a fly on the wall around Joseph and his brothers. They could not speak peacefully, shalom, to him. They hated Joseph so much, they couldn't even muster up the strength to pretend that they liked him. They couldn't muster up the strength to pretend that they could even tolerate him. They hated him. And this might be a point that is often overlooked, but my heart is heavy for, jo uh, for Jacob's other sons. You know, it's not easy to grow up in a family where you feel unloved, is it? That gets to you over time, doesn't it? For 17 years, they've watched dad dote over Joseph. Oh, the favored child. Joseph can do no wrong. Even when Joseph does something wrong, because we know he wasn't sinless, right? He's a man just like the rest of us. Even when he does something wrong, they probably get in trouble, right? Older children understand that, right? When the younger sibling does something wrong, the older kids get blamed. You should have stopped him from doing that stupid thing, right? What a horrible, difficult situation for his brothers. As John Goldingay points out, the Jacob family illustrates the dynamics of many a family with someone loved too much, someone loving too much, and some people not feeling loved enough. But with that being said, it must also be said that this does not justify their hatred and it does not justify their behavior. Two wrongs, you know this, two wrongs never make a right, do they? Only in mathematics, two negatives multiplied become positive. But two wrongs never 
make a right. Brothers and sisters, we cannot, we cannot control the behavior of those around us. We can't. We can only choose to continue doing the right things, right? Jacob was wrong. Jacob was wrong in the way that he showed favoritism. And Jacob's sons, they were wrong in in the hatred that they showed to their brother. They are going to be very wrong in the behaviors that they're going to carry out against their brother. But these are sinful, sinful behaviors, aren't they? They're not justified. Next week, we are going to see just how far the hatred of Joseph's brothers will drive them. We're going to make our way through, I hope, the rest of chapter 37. So if you want to read it and get prepared, um, I hope to make it through the rest of the chapter. But here's where I want to leave us uh, for today. Here's some thoughts just as we close. First of all, let's remember that Joseph came from a messed up and dysfunctional family, but by God's grace, he overcame as he continued to trust and obey God. Amen? We too can overcome the sins and the pains of our past. We do not have to be slaves to what we've been through, do we? Secondly, I want to challenge each of us to take a look at our own lives and ask the Lord to reveal areas where we might be falling short. You know, it's really easy to look at Jacob's life and point out all the mistakes that he made. You know, Jacob, boy, you sure messed up as a dad, as a husband. You really, you really blew it. It's easy to look at Jacob's sons and see how they blew it. But what we really need is to ask the Lord to show us the areas where we need to grow, Right? So let's invite the Lord to show us how we can be creating the type of homes where love, grace, forgiveness, and godly character are what's being celebrated, right? I think we all have room to grow in that area, don't we? We could all stand to improve on how we are are leading our families, can't we, right? How How are we treating our children? We can all grow in these areas. And finally, Let's praise God for the way that he is able to redeem even our greatest failures. As I look back on my own life, I'm amazed. I'm absolutely amazed at the way that God has worked. It's a past with a lot of mess ups, you know? And it hasn't been, it hasn't been without pain. It's not that there haven't been consequences for for choices that I made. There are painful consequences that I've had to, to walk through as a result of the choices that I've made. But by God's grace, he has done great things in spite of my failures, just like he did through this messed up, crazy family of, of Jacob's. Brothers and sisters, this less than perfect family that we have been talking about this morning is the family from which the nation of Israel will come. And you might even think that, oh, well, obviously, since Joseph is the best, then clearly the Messiah is going to come through the line of Joseph, right? But those of you who know your Bibles know that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, right? Judah, you're going to find out next week, Judah's the one who decides to sell Joseph into slavery. What? See, God has a way. God has a way of taking broken people, breaking them, and then rebuilding. And that's exactly what he's going to do through Judah's life. And that's what he's done through so many of your lives as well. And uh, praise God for that. God can take the brokenness and he can make something beautiful out of it, can he? Amen. 
Well, at this time, let me invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to close in prayer. And again, next week, we'll take a look at the rest of uh, chapter 37. I invite you to do your homework and get prepared for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that, that through this crazy, messed up family, they didn't have it all together. They had a lot of problems. But from this family, you brought forth a savior, your son, Jesus Christ. Your son who paid the price for our sins and, and, and the one who made it possible for us to enter into a right relationship with you. God, thank you so much for the way that you are able to redeem our brokenness and use it for your glory. And God, I pray that if there's somebody here who doesn't know your son, Jesus, that today would be the day that they would enter into a relationship with you through the gift that he has offered them, the forgiveness of sins that's available to them. I pray that they have questions about, about you or about your son, Jesus, or about how they can enter into a relationship with you, that they would, that they would come and talk with with someone, myself, or someone else this morning. And God, I pray that this week, that each one of us would, would think about Joseph's life. Think about Jacob's family. And God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and challenge us and convict us and help us to grow, that we might be creating families that are celebrated as, 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 as homes of grace and truth and love and forgiveness God, do a work in our families. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.